The views expressed on this program are not necessarily the views of this station. Content is for educational purposes only. Consult a financial advisor or conduct your own due diligence if investing. The show was pre-recorded earlier this week. The 2021 Top 100 Investment Advisory Firm ranking issued by Barron's is qualitative and quantitative. Includes assets managed, revenue generated, regulatory record, staffing levels and diversity, technology spending, and succession planning. Firms elect to participate but do not pay to be included in the ranking. Investor experience and returns are not considered. At the intersection of life and money. This is Everyday Wealth with award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and personal finance expert Gene Chatsky. Presented by Edelman Financial Engines, ranked by Barron's as the number one investment advisor in the country. Now, here's Gene Chatsky and Soledad O'Brien. Hi, everyone. I'm Gene Chatsky. And I'm Soledad O'Brien, and you are listening to Everyday Wealth. So for more than a year, as you all know, we've watched as housing prices have gone through the roof, huh? Get it? Through the roof? Uh (laughs) Inventory low, and we've seen buyers. My jokes are bad, I know. Uh, We've seen buyers going crazy, literally doing insane things, trying to get their offers accepted. It has been a crazy seller's market. But now... But now interest rates are rising and we're beginning to hear murmurings of the potential heat of the market cooling just a bit. We're going to chat with Mark Zandi, the chief economist for Moody's Analytics, and we're going to focus on the housing market. And then we're going to jump into home renovations, which I am in the middle of. Here's a fun fact, Gene. The first email I got this morning was, your roof has a leak. It's raining inside your house. So we'll talk about home renovations, costs and potential tax implications. And because I love all things housing. I'm very excited to jump right into that conversation. Yes, I I am excited to hear all about your renovations. As you know, I've been through one myself. In fact, I'm actually out of my house right now. And while I'm away- Where are you, Jean? Tell everybody where you are, Jean. I'm in Hawaii. But (laughs) better than that, I'm in Hawaii for work. The best way to see Hawaii. And while I'm here, Soledad, the last bit of my home renovation is- fingers crossed, being finished. Like magic. Just just poof, they'll get it done. <laughs> As many of you know, this show is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Each week, we benefit from the expertise of wealth planners and specialists from EFE. This week is no different. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Brian Leslie. He's a wealth planner from Omaha, Nebraska. Look, when it comes to home buying or renovation, not everybody thinks about consulting their financial advisor. But if you're with the right person, they actually can help guide you through every financial decision associated with a big project like this. When to borrow, how to borrow, how much to borrow. If you want to work with someone who will put your interest first, you can give the folks at Edelman Financial Engines a call at 833-PLAN-EFE or just go to planefe.com. So I know I say this every week, but wow, a lot has happened in financial news (laughs) over the last week. Again, job numbers Mm -hmm. out, oil production in the news, which I thought was great until we kind of dove down a little deeper into that. So let's walk through for everybody what they need to know on the news front before we jump into our interview with Mark about housing. Well, since you teed up that confusion with oil prices, let's actually start there because I I felt the same way as you did. Late last week, OPEC Plus, which is the consortium of the world's largest oil producing countries, announced that it would be adding about 650,000 additional barrels per day in July and August. And all of this 
this, of course, is a move to try to fill the gap created by sanctions on Russia and bring some real relief to households suffering under the weight of high prices at the pump. Gas hit another record last week. It's averaging about $4.71 per gallon. But in many areas of the country, it is so much worse. I was in California before Hawaii. I know, don't hate me, but it was close to $7 a gallon. And energy analysts, they took a look at these moves and they're just skeptical that they're actually going to work. And that's in part because many of the OPEC nations are already at capacity. One that's not is Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia does have more oil to add, but relations between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia have been frosty for the past couple of years. So we will keep you posted. Also, as you said, the jobs numbers, they did come in. And what we saw was a very, very slight cooling of the labor market. The U.S. added 390,000 jobs. That's the lowest since April of 2021. Unemployment stuck at 3.6%. But labor force participation, the number of people coming back to work, that actually edged up just a smidge. It's a sign that, that workers are slowly willing to just return to work, even though we still have about 5 million open jobs. And wage growth ticked down. Now, we were talking about this on last week's show, also with Mark Zandi. He said that's what needs to happen in order to avoid a wage price spiral. I mean, interesting to me, the companies that skyrocketed during the pandemic, the Netflixes, the Carvanas, maybe Tesla, they're actually trimming their workforces while companies that are reopening and rebounding, airlines, hospitalities, and restaurants, they just can't hire fast enough. Which makes sense to me. Everybody who hunkered down and stayed inside and decided to watch every single thing on Netflix, you know, we're back to commuting to some degree and back to work. And of course, if you're back to work and now you're going back out to restaurants and you're doing more takeout and you're out of your house more. So all of those numbers seem like they make sense to me. So we're now going to talk about housing, the housing market, housing generally, real estate generally. And, you know, I love real estate and housing so much. We're talking to Mark Zandi, chief economist for Moody's Analytics. He's also got a podcast called Inside Economics. So let's bring Mark in. Mark, welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you here. Oh, it's great to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. I am very excited to talk about the craziness of the housing market. So My favorite topic, so far away. Is it? My favorite topic, too, because I have of late become a little bit of an investor in housing. So I'm very curious if you think we're uh, coming on to a correction in real estate. And is that a correction across the board? Or, or where do you see that potentially sitting in, in what kind of areas of the country and oh, what kind of housing? Yeah, housing is going to correct. That means probably nationwide prices just go flat. That means that some markets are going to see declines. And I expect that the markets that have been the most juiced, Florida, Mountain West would be another case in point, we'll see price declines. That We'll see some measurable weakness there. Not, not you know, 10, 20, 30 percent, the kind of declines we saw in the Great Recession financial crisis, because the market is very tight. There is a very severe shortage of housing, particularly affordable housing. And lending, mortgage lending has been very good. So we're not going to see you know, a lot of people get into trouble here with defaults and foreclosures. And it's the foreclosure distress sales that really drive down prices. So we're not, I'm not talking that. But if you told me, you know, Orlando house prices at some point are down 5%, 10% from their peak, uh, you know, prices in Boise, 
that seems to be the poster child for you know the juiced up markets if down five ten fifteen percent from their peak. I don't think I would argue with you. And that, and that this goes simply to, you know, a few things, but most importantly, higher interest rates. I mean, the low mortgage rates that we had back a year ago, sub 3% on a 30-year fixed rate loan, that just drove a lot of demand, bumped up against limited supply, and you saw prices go skyward. And so you will see the converse of that now that mortgage rates are above 5%. Affordability has been crushed because they've conflated with the higher house prices. People just can't afford these house prices at these mortgage rates. Demand will weaken and we'll see prices start to come in. The other thing I, I just throw into the mix, and I'll stop, is remote work, obviously, during the pandemic, it was a key dynamic. You saw a lot of folks you know, flood out of New York and Philly and Boston and move into Orlando and Tampa and Jacksonville and Austin. And folks out of San Francisco and L.A. and Seattle, they moved into Vegas and Phoenix. That dynamic, I, I think remote work is here to stay, but there's going to be some swinging back of that pendulum you know, his office towers reopen in New York and San Francisco and Chicago. And so we're going to see some of that steam that is in those juice markets come out. So, yeah, I think the market is going to correct here. So when do you think those prices are going to come in? Because it, certainly in, in West Palm, where we live in the winter, usually it's dead. Uh, May comes, April comes, and people are like, it is way too hot and they leave. But when I'm back there, it's still busy. It's still crowded. People are still booking Airbnbs. That was kind of unheard of a few years ago. So I'm curious about your timeline on that, because I have my PhD in Zillow.com, and I yeah. feel like I'm tracking the <laughs> housing Zillow. market. I, isn't it the best? And yeah. I and I don't see those prices come again in my little tiny corner of the world. Yeah. I don't see that happening yet, although intellectually it feels like it's got to happen soon. Yeah, well, I live in Vero Beach, just up the oh, coast, we're and uh, yeah, I was there camping out during the pandemic winter, and yeah, I, I, I hear you. A lot of activity. I've, I've never seen Vero like that, and that's a sleepy part of Florida. Uh, but uh, it, it's just starting. The first thing to go is home sales, and you can feel it. You can see it in the data. You know, home sales are starting to come off. Uh, uh, pending home sales, which lead closings, are down substantively. Applications for getting a mortgage loan to purchase a home or way down. And that'll play out, you know, over the course of the, the rest of the year. You'll see listings increase, just starting to see that. Time on market will start to increase. We're just starting to see that. And then sellers will finally say, oh, you know, I, I just am not going to be able to sell at this price. And that's when they'll start cutting. That probably won't be until this time next year. So, you know, it take about a year. The other thing I'd say you know, housing market's clear in a very different way than stock prices, right? A stock market can go down fast because the price you see is the last transaction, right? The last buy and sell that occurred, that can move very rapidly. That doesn't happen in housing markets. I mean, people look at Zillow, they see the highest price they got on Zillow, and that's what they think their home is worth, no matter what's going on. And for them to give up what economists call reservation price, you know, what they think the value of the home is, takes some doing. It takes some time for that to play out. But we collect data on actual housing transactions, individual transactions based on deeds. And I can see, like in some of the really juice markets, I was just looking at data from Utah, like Park City, you know, it's another juiced market. Prices are starting to come in already. Mm. So uh, I think by this time next year, it'll become evident. So Soledad and I had kind of the mirror image experience during the pandemic, Mark. She bought in Florida. I actually sold my suburban home in New York. We were lucky enough to get stuck there for an extra year during the pandemic. And so we were able to sell for 20% over what we would have sold the year before. Bought in Philadelphia, Center City, Philadelphia. And I opened my Philly mag this month 
month and read a story that says, is this the end of Center City? What does this really mean? You say eventually the office towers will reopen, but what does it mean for these cities that people really did flock to? And do we need to be worried about the future of our downtowns that have come so far not just Philadelphia, but, you know, all these cities, Boston and Chicago, the different cities that people have really flocked to because of this desire to be able to live and walk and have their entertainment and their restaurants all in a place you don't necessarily have to drive to. Are, are you worried like that headline? Yeah, no, I think there's a reality to that. I think these big urban centers, particularly in the Northeast, Chicago on the West Coast, are going to be diminished by the pandemic and remote work. Uh, remote work is a real deal. It's here to stay, and it's a game changer. We can track migration of people based on credit file data, so we get this data every month. And you know, even through the month of April, you can see significant net outflows of people from places like, particularly New York City, that's that's really been hemorrhaging people. But to some degree, Philly, Boston, uh, Baltimore, a lesser degree, D.C., Chicago, Seattle, San Francisco, L.A. As I said earlier, I think those outflows will abate to some degree as office towers reopen, and some people won't like the new remote lifestyle from wherever they, they moved and they'll move back. Now, that's not to say these cities can't grow and do well, uh, they can. It's just they're diminished relative to what would have been the case if we you know, hadn't had the pandemic and this remote work dynamic occurred. Uh, the other thing I'd say is some of this is in the city's control. The, you know, if they make adjustments and, and adapt and adjust and uh, you know, take advantage of their comparative advantages, then they can mitigate to some degree the impact on their economies. And But when we look back 10 years from now, we're going to be able to see plot or graph employment or any other measure of economic activity that's lower than it would have been if not for the pandemic. Yeah, I agree with that. I think you're going to see that as a big inflection point, right, for a number of things that you're measuring for sure. But here's what I don't understand. How are the rents so high? Yes. Okay, we're hemorrhaging people, right? So that sounds like there should be lots of apartments that are available. And I'm looking at every single level. Young people who are just getting out of college who are looking to rent their first place. People who've saved money for the last 15 years who are now looking to buy their first place. People, you know, like me who are like looking to move and find a a place where they're going to spend their last 25, 30 years. Like, Every single category, it feels like renting and prices are so crazy. All those hemorrhaging people, how come they're not hurting the real estate market in cities like New York and others? I think it's a few things. I mean, one is when I said hemorrhaging people, you know, it's it's really folks in their 30s, 40s, early 50s, you know, people with families, you know, young kids. If you look at younger folks, 20-somethings, early 30s, kind of the millennials, they're, they're coming back into the cities. So I think to some degree, it might just be who's moving out and, and you know, the demographics of the people that are moving in their tenure choice. You know, do they own or do they, they rent? The other thing is, you know, we entered into this period, the pandemic and remote work, with incredibly tight housing markets, a very severe shortage of housing. But then that goes back all the way to the financial crisis and Great Recession over a decade ago when we had that massive housing bubble and then the massive collapse in housing that wiped out a lot of infrastructure to build homes. And so for the decade from the Great Recession up to the pandemic and now, we've just not been able to build a lot of homes. And so there's a severe shortage everywhere. And that's been very helpful in in keeping rents up and, and prices up. But I will say, you know, looking out 10 years, 
if I'm right about remote work and its impact on migration and, and number of people in big cities and the fact that now home building is picking up, you know, to a significant degree and will pick up very substantively once the supply chain issues start to abate, we'll get a lot more supply, particularly for apartments and rental units, uh, then we'll see a very different picture play out over the next decade. Do you see any issues with that new construction and this economy? Do you see people under pressure perhaps bailing on projects that they thought they were going to be able to afford? You mean developers? and? No, I mean individuals, actually. People who bought a home thinking, oh, well, I'm going to be able to get this at that 3% mortgage rate, and now I'm looking at you know, a much more expensive purchase than I actually set out to make. Well, I think for people who bought and they've locked in, you know, they got that 3% fixed mortgage rate, that they're not moving. Uh, they, that's interest rate lock. That's another reason why I'm really nervous about, you know, housing home sales that they're going to come off because people, first-time buyers, they get crushed because they just can't afford this interest rate. But uh, existing homeowners, they can't move because they're going to, if they move, they got to get a mortgage at a higher rate. So, you know, I, I don't think they're going anywhere fast. And then if you're sitting in your home and you're not moving, then you're, you are more likely to invest in that home. You can't move to find what you want, so you're going to make where you're living consistent with your preferences and, and your desires. So there'll be more home improvement and that kind of thing, but a lot less movement, a lot fewer home sales. So if we've got listeners who are thinking about trying to buy a new home. Maybe it's a retirement home. Maybe it's just they're looking for a change or or maybe it's even their first home. They're looking at a mortgage landscape right now that we haven't seen in a while. What advice do you have for buyers right now? Well, I'd wait. You know, to some degree, you almost have to, right? Because there isn't a whole lot of inventory, at least not yet. I mean, there's not a lot to choose from. So wait, if I'm right, and we start to see home sales come off, then we'll see a lot more inventory. People will have more options. Uh, They'll find a home that's more suitable to what they're looking for, and prices will start to come in. There's still, in many markets, people bidding against each other to get those homes, but that's going to come to an end, and we'll start to see some price declines by this time next year. And then hopefully you get a window when rates come back in. You know, mortgage rates, they go up, they go down. Like the stock market, you know, we're talking about the bond market, and that goes up and down and all around too. And so, you, you know, you might get a window where interest rates come in. And right now, 30-year fix is above five, at least the last time I looked. And, you know, you might get a window where they're below five, you know, close to four and a half or maybe even four. And so that would be the time to step in and buy. So I would be patient and continue to look for exactly what you want. Get to know your market really, really well. Get to know the neighborhoods, really understand, you know, uh, the home, what school district, highways, uh, amenities, things that you're looking for, and then be ready. You have your savings ready and your credit score in order, and then you can walk through that window when it opens. For most people, the way they build wealth is through their home. So timing, getting the timing there, if you can, really be a big plus in the long run. I think people sometimes forget that, that the home is this stored value account that you just, if you continue to pay it off and pay it off and pay it off, you carry it with you through life. Yep. Mark Zandi, thank you so much for a great conversation, for some really great information. We we hope you'll come back. Absolutely. And good luck with that Center City home. I think that's a great investment. I think you will do well. And then eight years from now, you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. <laughs> I was going to okay. say that. We'll check back in with you in eight years to see how okay. that investment's paid off. That's Mark Zandi. He's a chief economist uh, for Moody's Analytics and has his own podcast, which is called Inside Economics. Thank you, Mark.
Take care now. You too. We have to take a short break right now, but when we come back, we'll be joined by Brian Leslie, a wealth planner for Edelman Financial Engines, and we'll be diving into one of Soledad's other favorite topics, renovations and the potential tax implications. So stay with us. How do you know when to break up with your wealth advisor? Ask yourself, am I getting the attention I deserve? At Edelman Financial Engines, we don't believe you should settle when it comes to your wealth. That's why we model more than 38,000 securities so we can better stress test your portfolio through thousands of scenarios. Stop settling. Call 888-912-0373 or visit efewealthplanners.com to see what you might be missing with a complimentary financial plan. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Jean Chatsky. I am here with Soledad O'Brien. And this week, we're diving into the housing market, home renovations, the potential tax implications, which can be really confusing. And sometimes some benefits get left on the table. Every week, we are guided by experts from Edelman Financial Engines. If you are interested in talking to a wealth planner about your situation, if you don't want to leave those benefits on the table, just call 833-PLAN-EFE or you can visit planefe.com. Today, we are joined by Brian Leslie. He is a wealth planner from Omaha, Nebraska. Brian, it's so nice to see you. So, you know, both Soledad and I are in the middle of renovations. Will you make it three? I am four years out of renovation, so I don't want to go back. (laughs) We talk about it like something that we've survived. We're in the middle. You have gotten out and gotten through. It never really occurred to me to talk to a financial planner before I started my renovations because I thought they'd be straightforward. But everything is much more expensive than I thought it was going to be. Everything is much worse than I thought it would be. So let's talk a little bit about the advice that your clients come to you looking for. Is it just people who want to sell and they want to understand how to get the most out of their homes? Or is it just people like us who are just trying to make our homes good to live in. You know, I'd say a little bit of both, to be quite frank. Probably more of the latter, though. You know, because as you think about doing those renovations, number one, they're not cheap. And not only are they not cheap, do they ever stay on budget? So as clients come to me and they're thinking about making these renovations, so they want to know, quite frankly, if they can afford it. And we just have to go through the numbers and find out, number one, if they have the resources available, while also making sure they're not sacrificing anything on the retirement savings. Yeah, that was some of the advice that we got. I mean, we didn't just do a renovation. We sort of created an entirely new apartment during the pandemic. We took two units and we put them together and had no walls at one point or plumbing or electricity or <laughs> or, or any of that. You know, not the best time in the world to do that. But it's also not the best time in the world right now because of rising interest rates. Renovators are just paying a lot more on the money that they're borrowing in order to get these things done. At hermoney.com, because we, of course, write a lot about whatever's going on in my life, because that's what you get to do when you have a company, we wrote a lot about home renovation. And one of the formulas that we relied on was that every dollar that you put into a house should really yield an additional $1.50-ish 
in value, whether you're doing it for yourself or whether you're doing it to sell your house in the near future. I think a lot of people put money into their house just to sell it. And that doesn't make sense to me, at least in this market where everything's going at the drop of a hat. I'm with you, Jean. When it comes to my primary house and if I plan on staying there, it's, it's what do I want and doesn't make sense from a cost standpoint and, and can, can it be afforded? So yeah, I, I, as far as looking at it from an investment point of view, I don't categorize your primary residence in that investment category. There's a magazine. It's called Remodeling Magazine. And every year they produce this cost versus value report where they tell you this is where you're going to get the money back and this is where you're not. If you want to get your money back, you do kitchens and baths. People know that. Kitchens and baths are where the money is. But you also get a really good return by replacing your garage door. Who knew? I know. That's the first time I've ever heard of that. And I've done a lot of home renovation. Wow. Garage door. Like a lot of money back. A lot of money, like 93% return. A deck addition, vinyl siding replacement. They say a minor kitchen remodel. It, it's interesting. One of the things in this report that never paid off because you couldn't tell if the next buyer was going to want it or not was a home office. But now... I'm wondering, you know, with the shift, with the pandemic, I bet we're going to start to see that as one of those improvements that really does make a difference. And the thing that I'm surprised is not on this list is finishing your basement, because finishing your basement is the best way to get a huge amount of space for not a lot of money. I would wonder also if having a home office that's easily convertible, right? Mm -hmm. Because you see some home offices that are very home office-y versus it's a bedroom, but it can also be a home office. I think it's very helpful and much more useful to be able to say it's a home office, but you can quickly flip it back to a guest room, et cetera, et cetera. That's really fascinating. All of this stuff is so expensive. And I know one of the things that we actually sat down and talked about with our financial advisor when we were going through this renovation was where's this money going to come from? We were living in a house that we were not going to sell and get the money out of until the new house was ready and the new house wasn't going to be ready for quite some time. And so there's this question, do you take a home equity loan on your current residence in order to come up with the cash? Do you take a mortgage on the new place if you can afford a second payment? Do you borrow from your portfolio? Which by the way was what we ended up doing. It was a lot cheaper to do a margin loan on our portfolio than it was even to do a low interest rate home equity loan. So how do you help your clients make these decisions? Yeah, I think you just have to lay out what the alternatives are. I mean, you mentioned one thing of like home equity loans or home equity lines of credit, and those can be decent alternatives. You know, as you think about the rate to borrow there and the fact that it is variable, those numbers are starting to go up as interest rates start to go up. You know, of course, if you have a home equity loan, it's usually locked in. Otherwise, of course, you can go start tapping your portfolio, whether that means taking withdrawals or, in your case, using a margin loan where you're borrowing against the portfolio. You have to weigh the opportunity cost or, in the margin loan case, weigh that interest rate cost and just compare it to the alternatives. And those are calculations that we help our clients with all the time. I knew a number of people who got a mortgage after they got their house because the only way to get the property was to be able to come in with cash. And so they would come in with a cash offer and then immediately afterwards get a mortgage on their house. 
they could then kind of go back to having some cash buffer. Do you recommend that for your clients? To your point, this competitive market cash offers and being able to put one out there is is certainly given many people a leg up. And so you're seeing it uh, more often. From a financial planning standpoint, though, you just want to make sure you're you're not strapped for cash and that you do have liquidity. And I think that's the biggest thing where sometimes folks get overextended and they don't have liquidity. And all of a sudden, life throws another curveball at you while you've got your money tied up in the house and just don't have the cash to satisfy that. So talk to me a little bit then about taxes. Well, as you think about the deductions that are available, this is kind of in reference to just your primary residence. But as you think about the deductions, you know, there's property taxes. The problem is state and local income tax deduction is now capped at $10,000. So the next deduction, though, for your primary residence is mortgage interest. So coming back to that idea of borrowing, using a margin loan versus borrowing from a home equity line of credit, you may be able to take home interest deduction on that home equity line of credit, depending on how much you know, mortgage you've got out there. So those are a couple of the primary deductions that are available to you. The other thing that you have to consider is as you're making home renovations, that might change what your basis is. Sorry. What is that? What is that? What's your basis? Well, your basis is important. It's essentially what you pay for the property. Now, year to year, does your basis really matter from a deduction standpoint? No. However, when you go to sell the property, it makes a huge difference because any gain that you have on that property, which is what you sell it for minus your basis, well, let's say you bought the property for 300000 and then you make $200,000 of renovations over the years. Now your basis might be adjusted to 500000 If you stay in the property for 20 years, who knows? Maybe it's a million, two million, three million when you go to sell it. And, you know, if it's $3 million and your basis is 500000 that's a $2.5 million gain that you could potentially have to pay taxes on. So, you know, making sure you're tracking your basis for any of these significant renovations over the years can be important. So when we moved out of our house in New York and we had been there for 16 years, I had a very, very thick file of all the different improvements that we had made to this house over the years. I I knew I had overpaid for this house, and I, I was not really hopeful that I would ever make any money on it, but the pandemic came along. And the way the law works, a single person gets to write off a $250,000 gain on a property. A couple gets to write off a $500,000 gain. But if you've got any gain above and beyond that, if you can show, for example, hey, I put on a new roof and that cost $15,000. I finished the basement and that cost $60,000. You get to add all of that on to what you paid for the house and your basis continues to go up over time. But you need to have records in case the IRS comes along and says, I want to see them. And this is a really big issue. I just wrote a story for AARP about a couple in California where they have been living for 40 years in the same house. They bought it for nothing. It's now worth several million dollars. 
And they've got an enormous gain. They could end up paying a huge amount in taxes. But if over the years they save records of all of those improvements that they've made, particularly the ones that they've made recently, that will really, really help them. Right, Brian? Yeah, absolutely. But but I think we do have to call out like the difference between repairs versus improvements. So you mentioned earlier, like the roof example, if if you repair the corner of your roof, that's not necessarily an improvement. It's not really going to add to your basis. But on the other hand, if you just completely replace the roof, then you bet that does count as an improvement and it will add to your cost basis. Are there instances when someone would want to claim deductions for home improvements on their taxes? I mean, I know there's some environmental things where where you actually do get tax benefits. A lot of it's more of credits that you get, you know, for um, energy efficiency and stuff like that. We just did geothermal mm-hmm. and solar. It's been amazing, not a terrible process. So I highly recommend, and yes, we get subsidies, uh, obviously, for, for doing that. And so it feels very good. How do you capitalize then, Brian, on all those improvements that you've made? On a primary residence, it comes back to the basis. Just adding those things and keeping good records, as Jean mentioned, that way, if you should ever get audited, you can show the IRS exactly where you came up with the adjustments to your basis based upon those improvements. But that's the difference, I think, though, between your primary residence versus, say, a rental property, is a lot of these deductions, and whether it's a repair or whether it's an improvement, it makes a big difference as to whether it's your primary residence or whether it's an investment or rental property. And I think you have to differentiate between those two. The whole thing changes when we're talking about an investment property, a property that you buy to Airbnb or to use yourself part of the time and and rent out part of the time. We're going to visit all of those considerations on a future show. We're just going to switch gears a little. On this show, we often talk about how important it is to work with a wealth planner. So if somebody is taking us up on this advice and starting to actively look for them, what are the questions they should ask? Well, an important one to start with is the basic question of, are you a fiduciary? Basically, that means, are you working with somebody who puts your interest first? Soledad, when you found your advisor, did you ask that question? I cannot say I knew what a fiduciary was. So uh, no, no, I did not ask that question because it wouldn't have crossed my mind. I guess that I thought any wealth planner was someone who would just help you plan. And it sounds to me that a, a fiduciary, is that a legal assignment of they have to legally make sure that they're putting their client's interest ahead of their own? Is that what that is? Yeah, ahead of their own interests and ahead of their firm's interests. So for me, this started to come up, not with my own advisor, but just the question of commissions and fees. And if you were selling a particular product, are you selling the product that is really best for the client or are you selling the product that puts the biggest commission in your pocket? I mean, Brian, this is one of those words that just seems to have really bubbled up over the last couple of years. There must be a bad history in this. I always feel like there's a reason that people start talking about why you need a fiduciary. What's the background on this, Brian? 
There used to be a suitability standard. In other words, when somebody was recommending an investment, they just had to make sure it was suitable for you. Not that it was ultimately, you know, the best option out there, um, but that it just fit your objectives and your risk profile. Let me give you an example. Maybe you've got investment ABC and you're comparing against investment XYZ. And maybe they're both the same exact investment. Maybe they're mutual funds that hold the exact same holdings, but the only difference is the fees. And let's say that fund XYZ is charging two or three times the fees that fund ABC is charging. If the advisor thinks that the investment is suitable for you, they can put you into fund XYZ, the the one that's costing two or three times more, simply because it's suitable. But any reasonable consumer would look at those options and say, well, if they're the exact same thing, I want the lower cost. That's where a fiduciary would essentially step in. That fiduciary has that legal obligation to make sure that they're putting your interests ahead of their own. And I think that's a subtlety that a lot of folks didn't realize because to your earlier point, Soledad, a lot of people just assume the person giving them advice is working in their best interest. But oftentimes that's not the case. I do want to clarify, when somebody's picking the best choice for you, the best investment for you, it doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to be the best performing investment. They could be putting your interests first and doing everything with you in mind, and you could still lose money because the market goes down. Well, that's it. Nobody knows what tomorrow has to bring. So I think it's just looking at the potential options or the alternatives out there and making any you know, decision a reasonable consumer would make. And I should also build on that. It's, it's not just the cost, because as with a lot of things in life, sometimes you pay for what you get. But when you're looking at equal alternatives, and if the cost of one is higher than the other, then you know, you you have to really look at that. Now, obviously, a fiduciary is not just going to rubber stamp what somebody who's a client wants, I would assume. How much are you able to push back on your clients? Is that an awkward question? Is that like, I mean, like, do you do you No, I think it's a really good question. I mean, think about the scenario where the markets are falling. It's 2020. It's March. The markets are falling. Your client calls you and they say, get me out. That's your fiduciary responsibility to say, I think this is a really bad idea. That's it. A good advisor will tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. And sometimes that's tough advice to get, but that's what a good advisor will do. We sometimes hear the words objective advice. What does that mean exactly? Well, you you take a step back in the industry. A lot of advice was given with the idea of selling a product. With the planners at EFE, they don't get compensated differently depending upon the investments that are in your portfolio. Our clients pay us for advice, and that's what they get. You know, we take this responsibility seriously. You know, we're not here just to give you the same investment for everybody that walks in the door. We really have to understand your situation, what you're trying to get accomplished, you know, what your risk tolerance is. And quite frankly, working with a fiduciary like the planners at Edelman Financial Engines, it's the surest way to get that objective, unbiased advice. Thank you so much, Brian. I I hope that people who are listening know where they can find a planner who actually is a fiduciary. If they are looking for one, I'm sure that the folks at Edelman Financial Engines would be happy to help. You can find one at planefe.com. You can also pick up the phone and call 833-PLAN-EFE.
That's our show for today. If you have a question you'd like us to answer or maybe a topic that you would like us to discuss, visit us at planefe.com. Go to the Everyday Wealth page. If you missed last week's show, you can download the podcast there or anywhere you get your favorite podcasts. And we would like to thank Mark Zandi and Brian Leslie for being with us for all the great insights that they have shared. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great week. Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Listen in each week to hear fresh and compelling insights and strategies to help you elevate your financial potential. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com. Find our show wherever you stream your favorite podcast.